Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We're going to drill deep this week into two disparate subjects. Well, of course, we actually do that pretty much every week. But anyway, we're going to talk about the colonial pipeline and what its impact was on diesel supplies and diesel markets. And we're also going to talk with Todd Fowler. He's the chief transportation analyst for KeyBank. We have Todd here every other quarter to talk about what earnings season meant for the trucking market, what it said about trucking, and he's going to be with us in a few minutes. There's a small company called Gas Buddy that absolutely had its 15 minutes of fame this past week. Gas Buddy uses a lot of crowdsourcing and other tools to gather data about gasoline prices so people can search out the best deals. Never mind the fact that I've always thought for a car owner, driving a little further away to save a few cents per gallon on gasoline, probably those savings get eaten up in the savings when you consider mileage driven, wear and tear on the car and the value of your time, but whatever. However, Gas Buddy this week also had information on what gasoline stations were out of products following the closure closure of the Colonial Pipeline. This was information that was enormously valuable in the Southeast as station after station ran out of gasoline and closed up shop. The Twitter feed of their chief economic analyst, Patrick DeHaan, was a very hot item these past few days. Gas Buddy does have information on diesel, but they weren't sharing it as much free, freely through uh, through gas through excuse me through um, Twitter. That's okay. I know if you give away everything, you don't make much money. So writing about Colonial pipelines outage for freight waves, I had to turn to what I could obtain elsewhere if I wanted to get a handle on the amount of diesel that was uh, available uh, that was available even after the shutdown hit. I knew from the start that things were not going to be exactly the way they were with gasoline. A family with two or three vehicles might all suddenly rush down to the gas station to fill their cars up at the start of an incident like the colonial outage, but that doesn't happen in trucking. But it would make sense that a driver of a big rig might more often get off the highway and keep that fuel needle from falling further toward empty than he might normally do. That could have put a strain on diesel supplies as inventory is transferred from storage tanks into the tanks of trucks as drivers make damn sure they don't get low and don't get stranded. So how did diesel do in the first days when it wasn't getting resupplied by the pipeline? I had three sources of information. Loves put out a statement on its website about closures. This was a regularly updated statement. And so did Pilot Flying J. The third of the big three truck stocks, Travel Centers of America, they just put out a statement that it was dealing with the situation and outages might be expected. Racetrack, the convenience store change, put out an extensive database of every one of its 751 stores and what they had in stock. That was invaluable, but the problem is that Racetrack is located in the neighborhood. It's maybe not as much on the highway. So even though quite quite a few stores were out of diesel, I mean, at one point I figured it's about 15%. That didn't necessarily tell me much about diesel supplies on the interstates. But racetrack data also benefited from the fact that the change footprint is overwhelmingly in the southeast where the colonial outages were located. So you could really draw some conclusions about how diesel supplies were in the southeast just from what was going on a racetrack. But, you know, even after all that, I really could not draw a conclusion about how supplies were doing during the pipeline shutdown. The number of truck stops at Love's and Pilot Flying J that didn't have diesel tended to hover for those few days around in the five to 10 outlets. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, truck, stasis, truck uh, stops that were reported as out of fuel in one report might drop off the list of shuttered pumps 
and that would be replaced by new ones. So that kind of showed the fluctuating nature of the supply situation. Social media reports on Facebook pages where truckers gather had the occasional report of outages here and there. And obviously for a trucker running the risk of getting stranded, that would be a very big deal. Yeah, but then you also had to wonder whether some truck drivers who might also go through the Southeast just stayed home as a result of those concerns about supply of diesel. The outbound tender rejection index and in sonar for Atlanta, which is right in the heart of the shutdowns, definitely shows a big upturn in the beginning of the week. That suggested a tightening of capacity. Maybe there were drivers staying home. But it's peak, but that peak in Atlanta is the day before the announcement was made of the Colonial Line coming back, so we can't be sure. There was no similar reaction in Charlotte, which Gas Buddy said had even more stations closed than the Atlanta area, at least percentage-wise. Maybe a lot of drivers rushed to get lows and got the heck out of the Charlotte area uh, to, to go to someplace where there was plenty of fuel. We just don't know. My colleague, Zach Strickland, pointed out that Charlotte is a consumer market and isn't necessarily indicative of broader trends. So ultimately, it turned out it was tough to draw a conclusion. In the end, even there, even if there isn't hard data on whether the colonial shutdown impacted trucking, the fact is there would be anecdotal data that could lead to some conclusion being drawn, and that data just isn't there. The shutdowns posted by the two truck stops that released that data were not overwhelming, and the outrage on, so, the outrage on social media wasn't all that large. As far as prices, I think that when you look at what prices did this week, it's hard to see a price-driven reaction to the outage, though I think you do see some of it at, that some station owners took advantage of the shortfall to boost prices. They have the right to do that. It isn't an oil company thing. Note that by the end of the week, retail prices in the Southeast were coming back down, but this only happened after the shutdown was, I won't say ended, but when the Colonial Line started to come back. I tweeted about that on my Twitter feed, which is uh, the Twitter handle is John H. Kingston. I think the only question that remains is whether a few years from now, people will be saying, remember when the Colonial Pipeline got hacked and we were all going crazy for a few days? Or will they look at a string of cyber attacks and say this all very clearly started with that Colonial Pipeline hack? It seems almost kind of sacrilegious on a show where we talk about diesel to talk about something other than diesel prices, given what happened with Colonial this week. But I do want to change gears here because I've been writing about it all week. It's been a lot of fun. But more importantly, I don't want to pass up the opportunity that we have twice a year to speak with Todd Fowler of KeyBank. Todd is their chief transportation equity analyst there. He joins us every other quarter to talk about earnings season. So here he is this Todd, this time. Todd, welcome back to Drilling Deep. Hey, John. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Okay. So let me ask you, uh, when I looked over the earnings, the earnings that I did, of course, my colleague Todd made did most of them, but um, the ones that what struck me when I looked at the the comparisons to last quarter, or not last quarter, but the first quarter of last year, was that the revenue hadn't changed that much. And you, you, know, you figure the rate per mile, certainly uh, the first quarter of 2021 compared to the first quarter of 2020 was like night and day. You're talking about record-breaking numbers going on right now. Why wasn't showing up on the revenue line? Yeah, John. Well, there's always a uh, several moving parts, kind of you know, uh, underneath what what shows up in the top line. And I'll tell you, you know, from a comparison standpoint, a couple of things. You know, first, in the middle of the first quarter of this year, there was a pretty significant impact from from weather. And and obviously, we've got winter weather every year. Uh, but the first quarter of 21, particularly in mid February. 
you know, we had some pretty uh, meaningful shutdowns. We had several carriers who, you know, had trucks parked for, uh, you know, maybe three, four or five days. And so there was some impact on lost utilization as a result of that, you know, number one. You know, number two, to your point on the rate environment, we are seeing a significant increase in spot rates. The contract market is moving up, uh, but a lot of uh, publicly traded trucking companies really move a lot more contracted freight. So the rates that are being negotiated right now, we'll start to see those in the numbers as we move into the second half of this year and then into 22. And, and then the last piece I would point out is when we look at the active truck count, uh, we've actually, actually seen some slippage. Uh, truck counts are lower year over year. Uh, and that's certainly not a reflection of the demand environment. The freight is cer certainly there to be moved, uh, but it's a, little, it's a little bit more of a reflection of driver availability and just the fact that it's difficult to find drivers. So we're actually seeing the number of trucks uh, that, that are, are in the actively traded, uh, publicly traded fleet count shrink a little bit. And so you put all those together uh, and it makes the top line, the revenue line, look a little bit more muted than certainly what we're seeing in the underlying demand environment. Let's go back and talk about this uh, this reference you made to dedicated. I did two calls. I did several calls, but I did two of them that jump out along those lines. One was U.S. Express and the other was Covenant, both located in Chattanooga where FreightWaves is, but that's not relevant here. But in both cases, the respective CEOs talked about the fact that their dedicated rates were far below uh, where they think they should be, given the demand, and that they were going to go and have some what they assumed to be fairly tough negotiations with their dedicated customers in an effort to get rates set, rates higher. That you know, that they, there were references to double digits there. And they also both said, if we don't like the rate, we're going to walk away from it. We're not just going to chase the volume just because it's there. So, I, I, it, do you really expect you would you really expect to see dedicated rates, let's say, by the end of the second quarter, by the end of the third quarter, significantly higher than what we've got now? Well, we should see you know pricing across the board move up, and, and the underlying driver for that is you know um, you know what what U.S. Express and what Covenant and the entire industry is seeing is cost inflation, particularly on the labor side. So they need to uh, recoup that through their pricing. You know, the magnitude of the rate increase is obviously going to depend on where the contract is set. You know, uh, with the market. Uh, and there probably are some contracts, some dedicated contracts, um, where, where pricing really needs to move up um, more significantly than what it has in the past. Typically, on the dedicated side, we don't see you know the significant increases that we might see in just kind of the generic over-the-road market. The trade-off with a dedicated fleet, it's more consistent freight and more consistent route, so the trucking companies can plan for that. And then the contracts, you know, typically have um, CPI or, or escalators in them related to what's happening with cost inflation. But one component of that comes down to driver availability, and, and so you know, if the companies can support and say, "Look, this is what our cost for drivers are right now." Uh, and show that to their customers, and they need to recoup that in the rates, then we could see some pretty substantial rate increases uh, as we move into the back half of the year. You know, I always kind of wonder whether driver shortage or driver squeeze, we don't like to call a driver shortage here at Freightways, so I call it the driver squeeze, but how beneficial that is, whether it's a headwind or a tailwind. I, for a trucking company, I tend to look at it as, you know, it's an asset, and trucking companies by definition are long that asset. They may need to go longer on that asset, but when you're long an asset and the market for that asset is rising, that is a real tailwind. That is really bullish for your companies. So for all the kind of moaning about driver availability, is this basically good for the trucking companies, bottom line? 
<laughs> there, there's a lot tied up into the question. And, you know, the, 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 the simple way I would answer it, John, is typically what we see in, in tight driver markets where it's difficult to find drivers. Those usually correlate with good freight markets. And, and it's not from the standpoint that trucking companies want the driver market to be tight. They would love to grow. And, and you know, they want to have more drivers. They want to add more trucks. But when driver availability is scarce, it's usually tied to other things like the economy in general is just doing better. There, there's alternative jobs that are out there. The construction markets are doing well. The housing market's doing well. The manufacturing markets are doing well. So typically what we see in a constrained driver market is, yes, you know, the, the limited availability of drivers can restrict the ability to add supply and grow capacity in the market. But it's usually a byproduct of other things that are happening in the economy, which can be good for freight. So I think what trucking companies really want uh, is they want to have both of those things. They, they want to have a good freight environment where there's good demand and they can pick and choose their spots. And they also want the ability to grow their fleets and bring on drivers and handle more freight. It, it's just it's very rare that we see those things happen at the same time. Or usually if you're getting one, you're not able to do the other. Right. I'm going to circle back to the original question and uh, we'll talk about the weather and the second quarter and the and the, the the weather in February in the first quarter through the through the southeast through particularly Texas and one of the reasons why the revenue figures were not higher this year than last year this was a probably a bigger impact than anybody could have possibly envisioned right Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, just as far as, again, I mean, we, we see weather every year, um, but just kind of the, the timing of when this weather hits and kind of the the um, uh, the magnitude of the weather, kind of the geographic dispersion, and then some of the areas that were hit when you get into, look, I mean, you have weather every year in Chicago, you have weather every year in, in the Northeast, but when you start getting into, you know, Texas and the Southeast and some of those markets, you know, we start to see a bigger impact. And really, you know, what a lot of the, the freight companies are doing, and this is the right thing to do, is they don't want their drivers out in these markets. They don't want their trucks out in these markets. And so they're they're parking equipment until it really is safe to get back on the road. And, and that's the right thing to do. And so, you know, we see costs associated with that. We see lost revenue. But we also see on the other end of that, you know, once things start to open up, you know, this pent up demand and what we really saw kind of late February and into March was the freight environment really take a big step up um, because we were seeing, you know, this pent up demand from February, the same time we typically see a seasonal improvement, you know, kind of getting into the spring shipping season. Uh, and so that really created strength uh, as we exited the first quarter, which has lasted here, you know, through April and now into the first part of May. Yeah. So it's really striking to to look at those numbers and see uh, the miles driven were kind of flat, even though it was such a, a great market. And then you realize that, you know, a lot of the reasons kind of referring back to what you said was that you just didn't want to send drivers out on the road in those bad conditions in Texas and the rest of the Southeast. Yeah, look, and, and that's, you know, the right business decision to make. I mean, it's, it's good from a safety standpoint um, and really, you know, where there's some lost productivity, again, the freight ultimately gets moved, you know, at some point later in the month. And so it was a, it was a good business decision. There were some costs associated with that, but ultimately, you know, it did create some pent up demand um, and, and we saw real strength towards the end of the uh the end of February and then in, into March. And that's that's persisted again here, you know, into the second quarter. What kind of trends did you see in purchase transportation? Because if you're having trouble finding drivers, finding company drivers, you can always turn to the open market, people who have their own rigs. Uh, I know a couple of companies I looked at. I mean, I couldn't find, when I looked at the numbers, I didn't see a pattern. I saw some companies with purchase transportation being kind of flat. And I saw others with purchase transportation having taken a pretty significant increase. Did Did you conclude that there was a trend? 
Yeah, you know, I, I would say that the trend that we generally saw was there was more use of purchase transportation than we typically see, or at least the cost of purchase transportation went higher. And there's a couple of things that drove that. You know, as you pointed out, you know, if you don't have your own company drivers and you've got something to move, you may have to turn to a third party uh, to help in doing that. And obviously, with the driver availability and and you know the the reduction in fleets, uh, that was certainly an avenue that that uh, companies had to pursue to move some freight. Uh, and then the second piece is the purchase transportation line is going to be a little bit more reflective of what we're seeing in the spot market. So just the pure cost, the amount of expense that's going through uh, the the P&L as a reflection of that is going to be higher because uh, spot rates have been you know so strong uh, here year to date, particularly in the first quarter. So combination of both using more purchase transportation and the cost of purchase transportation being higher, uh, if we did see kind of that um, more stable um, line item on the salaries and wage side, uh, there definitely was a trade-off where we were paying more for purchase transportation as a result of it. These wage increases that everybody's put through, you know, I, I thought the cycle started in, in August or September. You, know, you, you figure cycles run for a little while, and then they pause, and they run for a little while, and they pause. Th- this hasn't paused. This has been nonstop. And these wage increases, of course, are sticky. Uh, they don't go away. And, and I, I was trying to think of other industries that face that kind of situation. You know, uh, I mean, a, a McDonald's can have to pay its workers more, just restaurants in general. Um, but the, the price of burgers is not going to collapse. Uh, oil companies might pay its workers more, too. And the price of oil might collapse. But labor as a share of, let's say, the cost of producing oil is relatively small. Uh, and then... Um, and but that's not the case with freight. Uh, you're going to pay these drivers more, and freight rates can collapse. They're certainly not going to do so anytime soon, but they can collapse. And then you're stuck with these sticky rates. What happens to these companies then? Well, you know, um, we, you know, we would expect, and we typically see this over, you know, any period. I mean, that's what drives some of the cyclicality um, from an earnings perspective. You know, for this group, uh, basically, a lot of the costs, not just driver pay, but you know, uh, the cost of your equipment, your back office costs, those sorts of things. You know, those are going to be fixed and continue to move up over time. Uh, and your revenue component, your volume, and your pricing, you know, kind of you know ebbs and flows with the course of the cycle, and that's what creates the overall cyclicality. You know, one thing that was a little bit, you know, unique about this period was I think that a lot of the companies had learned from what we saw in 16 and 17, where driver pay really started to move in advance uh, of some of the improvement that we were seeing in the pricing side. And the thought process was, you know, we're going to pay up for drivers right now and we'll capture that in some of our pricing down the road. I think that, you know, trucking companies were a little bit more methodical this cycle and, and wanted to hold off on the driver pay side. Um, not because they don't want to pay drivers more by any stretch of the imagination, but but really from the standpoint that you know we're talking about a cycle, but within a cycle we've got you know kind of this unusual environment that you know visibility was very limited about seeing things start to improve in the second half of 20. You know how sustainable was that? Do we run out and do we take up you know pay increases if we're going to see you know another wave of of downturn in the economic environment? So I think the combination of kind of working through the pandemic, making sure there was some confidence. Uh, that this environment was sustainable, um, maybe resulted, and also what we learned in kind of the the 16 and 17 cycle in in pay increases not coming through quite as quickly. Uh, But we are definitely seeing some catch up here, and we're not seeing any sort of relief on the pay front. Um, And and that's a good thing because we do know that industry pay needs to move on. Let's talk about other rising costs, the cost of diesel. And, uh, you know, it's always been kind of a 
just standard convention. Well, we got the fuel surcharge and, you know, that'll help us recover our costs. And it's not a really big issue. But then you get a quarter like the first quarter where, you know, based on the, the DOE numbers that, that are the basis for the fuel surcharge, they, they, they increase basically every week of the quarter, except maybe the last week. And of course, you're, that's, that's a lagging price. So your drivers are out there buying fuel at a higher price, and then the, the fuel surcharge catches up. You know, that, that's a formula for it being a real drag on profitability. And of course, you know, if you've, if you've got 12 or 13% of your miles at a deadhead uh, in your, uh, certainly not in the dedicated division, but, uh, you know, in your over-the-road division, there's no fuel surcharge there. How big a problem is this starting to get? Well, what we've been able to see right now is, you know, it, it's been manageable. Uh, I mean, so as you pointed out, you know, there is a pretty dynamic fuel surcharge that's in place and there's a little bit of a lag, right? There's a two week lag between when you're paying prices at the pump and then when you're resetting your fuel surcharge and when you're collecting it from the customers. But in a period of time where, where fuel's moving up, you know, gradually over the course of a quarter, you know, there's there's not a dramatic impact on an earnings. When we typically see, you know, the issue is when there's a big spike right at the end of the quarter. So we kind of close the books and we get those last two weeks where we haven't fully recaptured that fuel surcharge from our customers, but we had the expense in our P&L. You know, that's the dynamic where we can see it kind of surface in the numbers. But over time, it kind of ebbs and flows and comes out in the wash. The other thing is just right now, given the freight environment and the fact that, you know, again, there's there's a lot of, you know, uh, options from a freight standpoint. Uh, we're seeing pretty good spot pricing so people can be you know, more selective of the freight that they're moving. You know, basically a good freight environment, good pricing can really offset in the short term a lot of the cost inflation. Uh, and so that's you know what we were able to see again on a short-term basis. But you know, John, if you think about the nature of our conversation here today and kind of all the things that you know we're, we're talking about, uh, costs are moving up. Um, and so we're seeing it you know on the wage side, you know we're seeing it on the fuel side, we're seeing it on the insurance side. And right now we're in an environment where you know that sort of inflation hasn't led to demand destruction. So we're still seeing a very favorable demand environment. Uh, people are willing to to pay for and, and get the things that they want. But what we have to be very careful for is ultimately all of these costs are getting passed through to the consumer. So if we do get to a point where it becomes too much of a drag on the overall economy and it slows down consumer spending, that's really when it creates a, a bigger issue for the freight markets. So, you know, you put out a commentary the other day, you know, where this is c- continuing this theme of driver shortage and labor shortage in general and the strong market. You put out a commentary the other day about the uh, OEMs and the truck builders and that they might have a problem. Certainly their their order book is filled for the rest of the year, but they might have a, a problem going beyond that into 2022 and sort of picking up the pace because they can't get the workers. And that uh, so the idea that, well, we're just going to keep put, uh, putting new trucks out on the road coming out of the OEMs, that's going to face some restrictions as well. And then you've also got the problem that you, you I think you referred to that the, the trucking companies they don't maybe want to buy too many new trucks because they're worried about seating those trucks and getting the drivers to sit in that shiny new cab. Uh, this is a—is this a kind of situation you haven't seen before? Is this unique? Well, yeah. I mean, so um, what we. I would say what we're seeing right now that's unique is you know some of the production issues, particularly related to the OEM. So as you mentioned, I mean you know the issues related to labor availability and some of the the things from a pandemic standpoint within manufacturing environments that are you know impacting production. And then right now we're in a situation where you know there's not enough chips, microchips that are going into you know passenger vehicles and commercial trucks, and so that's having an impact on the ability to produce trucks. 
you know, what's what we're what's not unique and what we you know what we do see in the past is you know when the freight market is good, you know, trucking companies do want to buy more equipment because there's more freight to move. They want to grow, and so you know we we know that that desire is out there, um, but really the ability because of things on the production side and then the labor constraints. What's a little bit unique this time is we're just not seeing people, you know really running out, you know, taking up their CapEx budgets um, because there are these restrictions around the ability. If you, Even if you can get a truck, if you can't seat it, it really doesn't add additional capacity into the market. So, John, what we're thinking that leads to is combined with the fact that we've got, you know, favorable underlying demand, you know, good housing market, you know, areas that are good for freight activity, we think that this creates more of an elongated cycle, right? So, you know, we may not have that quick boom and bust where we see a bunch of supply come into the market and things correct. We think it's going to be longer and more gradual to see supply come in. And then the underlying demand environment seems like it's going to be uh, stronger for longer. All right. It's that time of the interview. I'm going to ask you to name some names. And you think about all the companies <laughs> that you follow and the, all the conference calls you sat in on. Who really impressed you? Who were some of the standout, not just standout performers, but some of the surprise performers? Uh, I know that almost everybody blew through their consensus numbers, but who really uh, knocked your socks off in terms of performance? Yeah, John, you know, this was just such a unique quarter where, you know, with kind of all the moving parts, uh, you know, uh, expectations were all across the board when you had weather and a good underlying demand environment and, and you, know, you know, challenging comps from the year ago period. Um, and ultimately what we saw was, you know, it was a very good quarter from an earnings perspective. All the companies that we cover with the exception of one, you know, beat consensus expectations and the magnitude of the beat was pretty significant on average, about 20% higher than where consensus was. So <laughs> maybe it's a reflection on the analyst community, you know, just not doing a good job of, of kind of, you know, modeling out where we thought the quarter was going to be. But I think what that's representative of this is a broad based, you know, um, uh, strong market. And so it's not unique to just any one particular sector. Yeah, what really stood out to us this quarter, and we don't talk about it as much, but the parcel companies, UPS and FedEx, you know, they really had strong quarters. So they've been benefiting for almost a year at this point from strength in in B2C and and e-commerce and residential and home delivery. So that's been part of a known part of the story. But what's really been incremental is we're seeing pricing move up to, to compensate for the higher costs of residential delivery. So that's helping them from a yield and from a margin standpoint. And then we're also seeing the uh, the B2B environment. So business to business start to come back. That's typically uh, a shipment that's going to have a higher margin profile for them. You know, those markets have been very weak for the past year, and we're starting to see that improve as we move through the first quarter. So the parcel environment, FedEx and UPS really seems to be in a sweet spot right now. Uh, and then the other area uh, that really stood out to us was kind of the conviction that we're hearing within the truckload market about the sustainability of these trends. Uh, so typically, you know, visibility can be very limited. There's not a big backlog of freight, uh, but we had several of the largest, you know, truckload carriers. Uh, in particular, Knight comes to mind. Schneider comes to mind. You know, they talked about this current strong demand environment persisting into 2022, uh, which is really, you know, it's an eternity in the in the, the the freight space to talk about having that sort of visibility from a freight demand standpoint. So across the board, a good environment. But those would be some of the standouts in our mind. You must be almost terrified. You and all the other analysts on the comps of second quarter of 2021 to second quarter of 2020. I mean, they're going to be so crazy as to be almost irrelevant, aren't they? 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the comparisons and, and we, you know, sometimes, you know, get caught up in talking about something being up 20% year over year, or down 20% year over year. Um, a couple of things, you know, right now, in, in some instances, you know, we're starting to look back on a two-year basis. So we're not looking at, you know, what import volumes are doing in the port of LA, you know, versus uh, 2020. We're looking at how are they trending versus 2019, kind of more of a normalized environment. And then the other thing that we think a lot about is the sequential progression. So, you know, how are things trending in the second quarter versus the first quarter and how do they typically trend? So if April was, you know, 2% better than March and in a normal year, it's, you know, flat or, or, or down 1%, we know from a seasonal standpoint, things are better, even if the year over year comp, you know, seems really kind of, you know, out of, uh, out of the norm. So uh, we try not to get too, too trapped in the gaudy numbers and try and think about it in different contexts. Text, but yeah, it's uh, really been kind of across the map with the comparisons we've seen recently. Yeah, and even sequential comparison, you're comparing, uh, you know, a time when it's spring, almost summer uh, in in the whole country versus a, a quarter that had a gigantic historic freeze in the middle of it. So uh, sequential comparisons got some issues, too. Yeah, look, it, there, there's always something kind of every quarter, right? And so, you know, a lot of times what we try and look at is, you know, the five-year averages or the 10-year averages, which can hopefully smooth for some of that and you throw out some of the outliers. Um, and, and some of it comes down to, to again, you know, anecdotal. And so, you know, hearing what people are saying and, and kind of how does this, you know, compare to what they, they would expect or, or kind of what, you know, they've seen historically. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day um, where, you know, things typically, you know, there's there's usually normal seasonality, you know, you, you you tell me, I don't know if we've ever had a year that's been quote unquote normal. There's kind of always something in the, in the mix or the comparisons that we always have to say. Yeah, the through. only question is a degree of abnormality, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Anyway, so. we want to thank Todd Fowler of KeyBank for being our guest here on Drilling Deep today. Todd, you come to us every other quarter. And so uh, I guess we'll see you in six months. Sounds good, John. Great to catch up with you today. Take so care. So you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. <laughs>